would you go to war for your favourite food? Because during the 1950s, that's just what the UK did. It essentially went to war for fish and chips. Yeah, I hear you. You've not heard of the Cod Wars between Britain and Iceland before? And well, that's because it's not technically a war. Not conventionally, anyway. If it was, I doubt Iceland's Coast Guard would have lasted long against the Royal Navy. But that said, whilst neither country declared war, things did get pretty heated. At the most active point of the wars, the UK had 37 naval vessels protecting British trawlers. You see, people take their fishing rights pretty seriously. It all started off with the first Cod War in 1958. At the time, Iceland had an exclusion zone of four miles around the country, where only Icelandic fishermen could fish. This meant that a lot of international fishing vessels could fish very close to Iceland. Iceland naturally got worried that their seas were being overexploited, so they made a new law that extended this exclusion zone to 12 miles. And that was the end of that problem. Well, with the exception that British trawlers decided to stick two fingers up at Iceland and its new law, and kept fishing up to four miles from Iceland anyway. Not taking kindly to the fact that some jumped-up chip lovers straight up ignored their laws, Icelandic patrol vessels decided to shoot across the decks of British trawlers as a warning to get out of the 12-mile limit. The UK's response was to send lots of Royal Naval ships to protect British trawlers and threaten to sink any Icelandic boats threatening to stop them. But being the underdog, and ultimately having a fair claim to its surrounding seas, Iceland won the first war after Britain conceded from international pressure. Let's face it, no one likes a bully stealing other people's lunch. By the 70s, Iceland was considering extending the exclusion zone to 50 miles. However, this time Britain respected this news, and didn't fish within Iceland's new zone. Wait, no, 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 they continued trawling in Icelandic waters regardless. This led to the Second Cod War, starting in 1972. Icelandic patrol boats chased off British trawlers like a pensioner chases those pesky kids off his lawn. The Coast Guard even started rigging up net cutters to separate nets from fishing vessels. One particularly big incident during this war was when the trawler, C.S. Forrester, was seen fishing in the old 12-mile limit and pursued for 100 miles before being shelled with non-explosive ammunition by an Icelandic ship. The C.S. Forrester was then boarded, and the skipper jailed for 30 days and fined £5,000. Fortunately, an agreement was negotiated that allowed fishermen from the UK to fish in certain areas of the 50-mile limit so long as they didn't take more than 130,000 tonnes of fish a year. This agreement would last about two years. Naturally, once this agreement ended, Britain and Iceland found a compromise and created a new agreement to ensure fair fishing in Icelandic waters. Just joking. Iceland threw down the gauntlet and changed their Welcome to Iceland signs to Home of the new 200-mile exclusion limit. Britain was pretty livid. There was an agreement in the pipeline to change to a 200-mile limit around the world, but this was years off. And so, the Third Cod War began in 1975. It went pretty much the same way the other wars went, with Britain trying the adage of try, try, and ram Icelandic boats again. In fact, there were 55 incidents of Royal Naval vessels ramming Icelandic ships. One Icelandic boat even used live ammunition to protect itself. Fortunately, no one was hurt. 
Royal Navy frigates were ramming so much that they were becoming damaged. 20th century warships weren't designed for naval warfare dating back to the antiquity, so the Royal Navy ended up strengthening their hulls as a result. But the outcome of the war was pretty inevitable, especially since America got involved. You see, this was all happening during the Cold War, and Iceland had a pretty crucial role for NATO. With a US manned naval airbase being located on Iceland's Reykjanes Peninsula. This base was used by America to track Soviet submarines and air force movements between the gap between the UK and Iceland. This was a pretty strong bargaining chip for Iceland, and they threatened to close the base, unless Britain kindly sod it off. Not willing to even risk losing this base, the US put a lot of pressure on the UK to stop, and in the end they did. An agreement was reached where 24 trawlers would be allowed in the 200 mile exclusion zone, so long as the catch was limited to 50,000 tonnes but this agreement only lasted six months, after which the UK never fished in the Icelandic waters again. For real this time. So what can we learn from the Cod Wars? Well, firstly that countries can find all sorts of ways to fight a war without using conventional means. In fact, I'm pretty surprised that British fishermen and Icelandic Coast Guard didn't start throwing fish at each other. Secondly, that in this case the UK couldn't learn its lesson for three consecutive wars. But most importantly, the fish were so important to both of these countries that despite being allied NATO nations, they still fought, very childishly I might add, over a source of food. Britain was so desperate for a source of cod, for its thriving fish and chip industry, it was willing to defy Iceland's fairly reasonable claims over ownership of its coast. But it just goes to show, you might have one of the strongest navies in the world, but you shouldn't mess with the descendants of Vikings. My name's Tom Gadd, and welcome to A Bite of History. Episode 0. From the past to your plate. One of the greatest questions that faces humanity is what unites us. Humans are a species that rarely agree on anything, nor do they often present a universal front. Often societies really push that it is the differences that all us individuals have as being what makes us special. People the world over speak different languages, have different jobs, choices of politics and religion. We live in different countries, we look different from person to person, we have different ideas. So, on the face of it, trying to find things that every human has in common is really hard, considering that me and my fiancé can't even agree whose turn it is to do the washing up makes it seem impossible to think that the rest of humanity would be able to agree on whose turn it is either. But before we start to panic about whether the plates will ever get washed, and how we can go on as a species if we all can't find something in common, don't worry. There are some things that we can all agree are true. For example, we all need sleep. I have yet to meet anyone who can get through life without sleep. All humans share the basic emotions of sadness, fear, anger, happiness and surprise the need for McDonald's. Furthermore, we can all name at least two songs from the rock band Queen, which we can enjoy. And if you can't name two, then in all likelihood you're not human. Another commonality which binds every human is the need for sustenance. We all need food. You can be an Israeli, a Palestinian, a working class farmer from North Korea, 
or a member of the Swedish royal family, a Roman legionnaire from the 1st century, or an office drone working in modern-day Basingstoke. We all need food. In fact, needing nutritional substance is something that transcends human experience. Every living organism that exists or has existed on this planet has needed food in order to survive. The first microorganisms, from about 3.7 billion years ago, produce food through photosynthesis of water and the sun. Dinosaurs needed food, and our ancestors, the Homo erectus, couldn't survive without it. Look, the point I'm beginning to get at is that history and food walk hand in hand. If you look up food in the Oxford Dictionary, and that's the only dictionary you should ever use, by the way, food is defined as any nutritious substance that people or animals eat or drink, or that plants absorb in order to maintain life and growth. And it's maintains life and growth that is so crucial, because without food there would be no history. Food is just essential to human life, and without human life we would not have history. It's just that simple. So there you have it. Food is so important to life that we wouldn't have history without it. That's the history of food. Thanks for listening to A Bite of History. Except there's a lot more to the history of food than that. Indeed, the history of food wouldn't be very interesting if that was all there was to it. So let's take it a step further. With food being essential to life, civilizations have always had to adapt and find places that can produce enough food to sustain them. For example, ancient Egypt's population was most heavily located around the River Nile, as water is essential to the growth of crops. Cowboys existed in the Wild West in order to get cattle from pasture to pasture. In both cases, we can see how making food affects the course of history through a combination of geography and science. We all know about the famous eruption of Mount Vesuvius in 79 AD, and the subsequent destruction of the Roman city of Pompeii, the ruins of which we can still visit today. But did you know that there was an even larger eruption which occurred somewhere between 1,000 and 1,500 years earlier, named the Avellino eruption? The eruption destroyed several Bronze Age settlements in the area, Yet, just a few hundred years later, Pompeii was founded right in the same place. Perhaps it's just me, but it seems pretty insane to rebuild on the site of a volcano. Perhaps people just forgot. Or maybe it was something to do with the incredibly fertile soil for crops from the ash-rich soil. Even today, the modern city of Naples stands perilously close to Mount Vesuvius. People are just willing to take the gamble when access to food is concerned. In fact, it's one of the many ironies of the history of food that food is so important to maintaining life that often humans are willing to risk that life in order to obtain it. But food goes beyond physical needs and impacts on society. It plays a big part in culture and the social aspects of our lives. Look at social class as an example. If I said to you that there are two people eating right now, one is eating a greasy burger with fries in a fast food car park, and the other has just sat down to a Michelin-star restaurant as a team of chefs brings out a platter of caviar and the sommelier pairs the finest glass of Sauvignon Blanc. I'm pretty sure you can assign class to those people without too much trouble. Let's face it, what you eat, where you eat, how you eat, and sometimes even when you eat, often say something about you. And that extends to the people who are now consigned to history. Those at the very bottom of the social order of medieval Europe were the peasants and they were the farmers and agricultural labourers of the food chain. So, during medieval times, those who produced the food were right at the bottom. 
This is the complete opposite of the hunter-gatherers of the Stone Age, where successful hunters would have been seen as a powerful part of any social group. Once civilization developed, it has pretty much become the rule that the more food you have, the more wealthy and powerful person you would be. Take a look at Renaissance paintings such as those of Paul Rubens, or think of Botticelli's Birth of Venus. If you're struggling to think of which one that is, trust me, you know it, is that really famous painting of the naked woman standing on a shell in the sea. They all have ladies who are a lot plumper in nature than today's standards of beauty. And that's because in the medieval ages, being thin meant you were weak, poor and lacking in food. Being fat was a sign of wealth, nobility and beauty. I guess fat bottom girls really did make the medieval world go round. Speaking of rich people, let's give a quick tour to the importance of feasts throughout history. Feasts could be the ultimate displays of delicacy, decadence and debauchery, like those of Roman Emperor Nero, whose 12-hour feasts likely consisted of dishes such as fried dormice and sculpted fowls made of boar's genitals and sow's wombs. Mm. Even more lavish was the fact that between courses, Nero enjoyed other pleasures, if you catch my drift. In fact, one of Rome's most famous historians and senator, Tacitus, had this to say of one of Nero's greatest feasts in Rome. The entertainment took place on a raft constructed on Marcus Agrippa's lake. It was towed about by other vessels, with gold and ivory fittings. Their rowers were degenerates, sorted according to age and vice. To Julianus, that's the feast organiser, had also collected birds and animals from remote countries, and even the products of the ocean. On the quays were brothels stocked with high-ranking ladies. Opposite them could be seen naked prostitutes, indecently posturing and gesturing. Oh, Nero, you dog! Feasts have also been the sites of important power plays. We often feel safest when we're eating. Let's face it, not many of us would eat during situations where impending danger is likely. Throughout history, sharing food with your enemies has often been seen as symbolic of peace and compromise. But some have used this ritual as a ruse to rid themselves of their enemies. In 1437, the King of Scotland was murdered, and his son was made King James II. He was young and therefore malleable and suggestible, and as such, many families vied for control of the young king. Three years later, and the young king's Lord Chancellor, named William Crichton, invited the crown's greatest rivals, the 16-year-old Earl of Douglas and his brother, to a great feast at Edinburgh Castle. After the dinner ended, a covered plate was brought before the young Earl. When he opened it, the decapitated head of a black boar was revealed, a symbol of death. Lord Chancellor Crichton then had both the Earl of Douglas and his brother executed, despite the King's protests and the betrayal of hospitality. This was such a vicious event that it inspired George R. R. Martin to create the Red Wedding in his Song of Ice and Fire novels. Anyway, despite that innate logic that exists that would stop most of us eating when we feel under threat, many soldiers across history have had to consume food in hostile situations, despite their instincts. During World War I, soldiers did everything in the trenches, including eating. Imagine eating your breakfast knowing that all that separated you and death was two and a half to five metres of earth. An experience that can only be replicated today by eating a dodgy kebab on the London Underground after a night out. But food is so important to armies that they must eat even when danger is obvious. Without food, armies don't perform well, and with starvation comes death and desertion. 
Ask Napoleon Bonaparte and Adolf Hitler what happens when you attack Russia in the winter and food runs out. The greatest tool attacking armies had in sieges is the ability to starve defenders into submission. In short, conflict requires food. Without it, you lose battles and wars. And losing battles and wars? That changes history. Many civilizations in history have sought aid during times of war from less earthly sources than food. Religion has played a big factor in history, and many of its ceremonies and values are linked to food. From the earliest proto-religions, praying to a god for rain so they can grow crops, to Jesus sharing bread and wine as symbols of his body and blood. If you look at many moments when religion has had a role to play during history, you'll often find food sneakily lurking in the background. The ancient Greeks had some pretty notable myths and religious practices around food. For example, it was believed that Prometheus, the son of a titan and benefactor of mankind, deceived the father of all gods, Zeus, during a meeting of gods and man to decide the rights of each race. Prometheus slaughtered an ox and cut the skin in two. He wrapped all the lean meat in one part of the skin and placed all the fat and bones in the other. The gods then chose between them, and they picked the one full of fat and bones. This was how it became established practice among Greeks to burn the fat and bones as sacrifice to the gods. Meanwhile, the meat could be saved for human consumption. A very convenient myth that no doubt saved many a Greek from chewing on gristle. Religion has also affected the consumption of foods throughout the course of history. Both the Jewish and Islamic faiths' religious texts prohibit the eating of pork. Religious festivals have also established the practice of fasting in celebration of significant religious moments, such as Ramadan and Lent. Although both religious and non-religious fasting have often been used during times of great political and social turmoil and as symbolic of great sacrifice, in a sort of ironic twist where not consuming food somehow makes history. I could continue for hours on how food is such an interesting lens to view history, but I'll save these for future episodes, as I think I've made my point. Now you might be thinking, Tom, you sound like a very eloquent, intelligent and handsome fellow, and I take your point about how much of a role food has played in history. But why should I care? What's the point? Well, you sweet talker, that's a fair question. I'd say there's two answers to why you should care. The first, and I hope I'm not too assuming, but since you've chosen to listen to a podcast about the history of food, and you've made it this far into an episode, that you love history, and or food, and you find it interesting to learn about it. Hopefully over the course of this podcast, I hope we can learn many new things along the way, as well as getting some entertainment from it. The second reason, and I do apologise for this, in fact, I'll have to put a pound in the historical cliché swear jar, is that those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And as overused as this phrase is, it is unfortunately true. We have so many issues today and in the future that revolve around food. I know that in Britain, issues around the consumption of meat and animal products is more prominent than ever. One in eight people in Britain are now vegan or vegetarian, and a further 21% see themselves as flexitarian. But vegetarianism isn't something new. It stretches as far back as ancient Greece and India perhaps even further. Understanding how humans came to eat meat could be crucial to re-evaluating our relationship with animal-based products. A lot of people today have made the choice to be vegetarian because of the impact of meat farming on the environment. But this can be extended to agriculture in general, which can ruin ecosystems, influence climate change, and have a heavy impact on sources of water. 
These problems will only get worse as the population of the Earth increases more and more. Twelve millennia ago, it's estimated the human population of Earth was just four million. By 1800, this had increased to about one billion. But with things like the Industrial Revolution and improved medicine, the population has shot up to 7.7 .7 billion, according to the latest UN estimates. And it's not going to stop increasing any time soon. Can we keep producing enough food for our ever-growing populations? Historically, populations have always grown according to the possibility of food. The transition from hunter-gatherers to agricultural civilizations thousands of years ago was crucial to the flourishing of humanity. Roman farmers degraded their soil so much that the Roman Empire began to rely on food imports from Egypt, which may have had a role to play in the empire's downfall. Perhaps the solutions to feed our growing population lie with new food sources such as insects. Except the eating of insects is nothing new. You can read about it in the Old Testament of the Bible and find that it encourages Christians and Jews to eat grasshoppers, beetles and locusts. Even St John was said to have consumed locusts when he lived in the desert. The funny thing is that it's estimated our global food production combined should be capable of feeding 10 billion people. More than enough. Yet we all know of famines, impoverishment and malnourished people, areas and countries. How is it that some people still die of starvation around the world when we have more than enough food? It's a complicated question to do with socio-economics that has existed for centuries, with some efforts to tackle it meeting some success and others failing utterly. Not everyone can afford to buy food, and anyway, what is a fair price for the food we buy? I know that farmers in the UK often protest about the price at which supermarkets force them to sell their milk. Most countries don't tax essential foods such as bread and flour as they are seen as incredibly vital to our lives. This is a tradition that goes back to the grain dolls of Rome or the flour war during the French Revolution. Today we can see an increasing popularity for fair trade foods and ethical consumption. This movement started back with the founding of the first fair trade organisations in Europe during the 1950s. And at the time of... Recording this podcast, we're currently undergoing the coronavirus pandemic and going somewhere such as the supermarket to find food is incredibly difficult. And looking back at history, there's been diseases before. How did people cope with finding food sources during those times? It's all relevant. I could go on and on for hours about the issues we face today and in the future relating to food, but I'll stop. I think you can all agree that these are incredibly important and if history could just teach us one thing on how to tackle them, it'd be worth it. So, having established what the history of food is and why it's important, I suppose I ought to explain what a bite of history is. Well, obviously it's a podcast, and obviously it's about the history of food. But each episode I intend to do for a bite of history is going to focus on a certain aspect of food history, and how it has shaped the world around us. Have you ever considered how important bread has been to history? What about other staples such as rice and potatoes? What about all the times where a lack of food has influenced events? The technological innovations pushed for because of food. Empires built on food and trade. The importance of domesticating wild animals. The history of the pub. A very important one if you ask me. These are the ideas that will inspire the episodes of A Bite of History. And I hope that for each idea I can bring across the passion I feel for each topic. So next time, please tune in for my first episode, where I explain what I think is one of the first game changers for the history of humans and food. Until then, let me leave you with a little homework. Tonight, when you sit down for dinner, have a look at what's on your plate. There's probably a lot of history in front of you. You're not just eating food, 
you're taking part in a tradition that goes back thousands of years, or you might even see it as taking part in a basic process of living that goes back billions of years. Thanks for listening.